Hey, Fidelity. How can I remember to invest every month? With the Fidelity app, you can choose a schedule and set up recurring investments in stocks and ETFs. Huh, that sounds easier than I thought. You got this. Yeah, I do. Now, where did I put my keys? You will find them where you left them. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. And this is Love to See It, an obsessively detailed recap podcast about reality dating shows like The Bachelor and other pop culture that makes us laugh, cry, and curse the patriarchy. We can't live with these shows and we can't live without them, but we can break down every juicy moment and unpack all the weird messages these shows send us about love, sex, and dating. Welcome to Love to See It, a podcast about being loved just the way you are. And singletons, smugged marrieds, mini gherkins, and gravy that just needs sieving, Pam. I think you just need to stir it, Una. Joining us to discuss the 2001 classic Bridget Jones's Diary is friend of the pod and actor Molly Bernard, who you'll see soon in Richard Linklater's Hitman with Glenn Powell, who is also about to be like the newest big screen rom-com hero of our time. And the upcoming movie, Anyone But You. Is that right? I'm ready. Yes, I've been seeing so much promo for this, and it looks weird and fun. (laughs) I love weird and fun. Okay, so Molly, before we get into our Bridget Jones discussion, we wanted to know, what is your relationship with holiday rom-coms in general? My relationship is one that is currently struggling because the modern-day rom-com is lacking. So <laughs> I find that I'm drinking the vintage wines. I yes. If I need a rom-com, basically, it's always British Jones's, or Bridget Jones, British Jones. <laughs> British Jones. <laughs> I'm just going to call British it that. that I'm just going to call it that's British just, Jones. That's yeah. accurate. And British Jones <laughs> just takes me away into my ultimate rom-com, <laughs> British Splendor, followed quickly by Love Actually. So I, I feel like I'm... I'm I love a rom-com, but it's it's so rare that they're done well and I think this one, Bridget Jones, is the best exemplar of what a rom-com can be and should be. Yeah. You're like I don't want quality. I don't want quantity. I want quality. I want to go down to the cellar and select the perfectly aged rom-com to consume with my holiday festivities. Right. Yes. And Netflix is committing crimes against humanity with the (laughs) rom-coms, specifically the holiday rom-coms that they are putting out. They are... Oh, dark. Abysmal. Um, And that queer, that gay rom-com that came out a few years ago... Single All the Way. Happiest Season. It was Happiest Season. 
Single All the Way I actually liked. I did not love. Happiest Season was the gay one, right? With women. Okay. Yeah. LOL. Yes, I love yeah. that I'm queer and that's how I described that movie. Um, <laughs> the reason that it bothered me so much, <laughs> Happiest Season, quote unquote, it's it's a trauma. It's a trauma film about outing. Yeah, I couldn't even yeah, watch it because I saw traumatic. the reviews and I was like, oh, this doesn't sound fun to me at all. I just wanted her to run off with Aubrey Plaza the whole time. We all did. And that's why I rewatched the movie is basically just for Aubrey Plaza. Correct. <laughs> so you've already kind of told us why you chose Bridget Jones's Diary. It sounds like it's a favorite for you. Did you typically think of it as a holiday rom-com or was it more that when we put it on our list, you were like, oh, I guess that's a holiday rom-com. <laughs> Oh, interesting. No, it opens and closes at that Christmas party or the New Year, what, between Christmas and New Year's is its plot, right? Yeah, so, that, that like holiday yes. week. Yeah, I, I do think of it as a both holiday movie and a it's a rainy day in the summer. I need to feel cozy and mm. order some takeout. So, but I feel like all good holiday Ooh. movies serve that purpose. A hundred percent agree. I think that you absolutely nailed it. A movie like Bridget Jones is like a warm and cozy hug. And so it feels appropriate any moment during the holidays and then also year round when you just need to feel cozy. Yeah, it never goes out of of style or season. It really doesn't. Okay, so let's get into the background of this movie. Something that was interesting to me upon looking back at when this movie was released is that it's such a like holiday time coded movie. And I was shocked to realize that it was released in the US and UK on April 13th, 2001. Shocking. Are you serious? (laughs) Shock. It defies like they would never do that now. They would never put this out in the spring. It's so It kind odd. of seems like either a summer or a holiday movie to me. Like, you have that yeah. classic interlude when she's dating Daniel and they go on the mini break and they're, like, in the pond on a summer afternoon. Correct. But it doesn't really give spring. April? It doesn't give April. No, no. No. It's really not giving April. Really not giving April. I assume they were just like, it's based on a novel, so we'll just put it out whenever because it is based on... Helen Fielding's 1996 novel of the same name. Fielding started her career as a columnist for the British newspaper, The Independent, writing about the experience of being a single woman. It was kind of similar to Candace Bushnell's Sex in the City columns. This was all in like the same period of time. Um, and also Bridget Jones's diary obviously draws heavily from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Uh, So it's the columns and it's Pride and Prejudice. The name, come on. Every time she calls him Mark Darcy, I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) And that that was just explicit. Like, Helen Fielding was like, I am basing this character on Mr. Darcy, specifically Colin Firth playing Mr. Darcy. I mean, it's not just that it draws from, like, it basically is a modernization of Pride and Prejudice. It's just not an annoyingly faithful blow-by-blow modernization, which is one of my pet peeves about modernizations, is when they're like, everything has to be exactly the same with an exact analog in the original text. It's a bit looser, but it's clear that Bridget's arc is essentially Lizzie's arc, and Mark Darcy's arc is essentially Fitzwilliam Darcy's arc. Yes. (laughs) And some of the other plot elements are 
are tinkered with or given to other characters. She doesn't have several sisters, for example. But it's pretty much Pride and Prejudice updated, and that is one of the things that makes it so timeless. Yeah, it's more more in the style of Clueless and Emma, mm, right? Mm-hmm. It is yeah. it is that kind of analog. So Helen Fielding's dear friend Sharon McGuire, who apparently the character of Shaza is based on on Sharon. <laughs> Shaza. <laughs> she directed Bridget Jones. And this is, like, McGuire's biggest hit as a film director. A lot of her career was in TV as a producer and director on the UK's The Late Show. And she came from a background of, like, documentaries. And so this was her first feature film, which I think is so interesting. Can you imagine making this movie about yourselves with your best friend? And it's one of the best rom-coms of all time. And we're, you're like, nailed it. Wait, I'm getting an education about this movie. I had no idea. I love this movie so much, and I've never actually investigated who made it, what what it, its origin story is. And I, I'm shocked that a woman directed it, that it's her first movie, and that she did not become, like, a crazy famous director, because it is exquisitely directed. The, the comic timing it's is— It's so good. It yes. Is, it is clown. It, it's honestly— way smarter than I think audiences are probably aware of. But, like, it's it's elevated comedy. It's so smart. Yes, I think that's ex- that's so true. And it's something that I you notice a lot more when you're, like, close watching it, like we did, to, to recap it. Like, you're paying such close attention, and you're like, yeah, the timing is sharp, the way it's shot. Like, looking back, it actually didn't surprise me that it was directed by a woman because we just watched Serendipity and it felt so obvious that that movie was directed and written all by men. And when you put those two side by side, you know, they both came out in 2001. They were both produced by Miramax. It is like night and day. Yeah. And there is like, it's not, it doesn't feel like it's directed to a male gaze in the same way as serendipity, but also there's just an incredible density of jokes. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think I'd ever fully appreciated it. We've been watching a fair amount of bad Netflix rom-coms and we'll be like, wow, there was that one joke that was funny in the whole movie. (laughs) Right. And watching Bridget Jones, I was like, there are all these jokes I didn't even notice in the past that are just tucked away in an aside or out of focus, you know, while something's happening with Bridget, something really funny is happening over on the other side of the room. And I mean, that's quality. Like, there's something new to discover every time. I completely agree. I feel like watching it last night, it it kind of was also reminding me a little bit of in terms of the density of Arrested Development, how the jokes build yes. on, oh. on them. And you're kind of, it's it's operating on a a macro and a micro level. And so it's actually quite like sensorily um, delicious because he, there's 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 no fluff in the movie. Every moment leads to the next. Um, this is so dumb, but sometimes I forget that I have like an MFA, which is allegedly a <laughs> master's of fine arts and acting from Yale University, which is LOL. But there's this notion of like, <laughs> A good piece of theater or a good um, story is like a n- not. It's not just a pearl necklace, which is the the beautiful pearls that are all connected by the string, but it's that each moment necessitates the next, and that's how mm-hmm. you earn not only like laughs but uh, emotional kind of 
that, that that's how you earn empathy from your audience, and that's how you I, I earn identification from the, between the character and the and the audience. And I just I was like, wow, this is normally I free watch even movies that I love or am watching with deeper attention. I'll still like be dicking around on my phone. I didn't pick my phone up once. I was just like, I have seen this movie so many times and I am sucked in and I can't look away because every moment is doing yeah. something. Yes, and I was really struggling. I was texting Emma, how am I supposed to leave anything out of the summary? Because every <laughs> joke is important for setting up something else. A callback, uh, uh, it will motivate some twists later. I kept leaving something out and then going back and putting it in after all because otherwise... <laughs> Something that happened three scenes later wouldn't quite make sense um, because there's this density, but it's all, like, meaningful density. Yeah. And we're not used to that. Yeah. We're so used to now, like, with streaming content. N obviously, some of it is great, but there is just this wide range of things that are vaguely watchable but not meaningful yeah. at all. And so I think our brains are kind of trained now to consume media in a way where it's like you catch every fourth word. And with Bridget, it is every moment matters. Every moment is commanding your attention. And every moment is actually telling you who these characters are and why they're acting the way that they are. And it's it's really exciting yeah. to go yeah. back and and watch it, especially in this current media landscape. Right. So it's that it's that difference between ambient and intentional. Yes. Yes, exactly. So Sharon Maguire directed the first Bridget Jones. She did not direct the second, which was terrible, but she did come back in 2016 to direct Bridget Jones' Baby. Let's talk about the screenplay. The screenplay was written by the legendary Richard Curtis, working from a draft. Richard Curtis, of course, of Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, Love Actually, which he also directed. Oh. Um, and he was working from a draft written by Andrew Davies, who was the writer of the BBC's Pride and Prejudice, and Helen Fielding herself. So, like, what an... I am, like, blown away by this team. Yeah. It's incredible. Team of legends. Truly. Wow. That's sterling, huh? That's great. Yeah. Wow. And I love Helen Fielding. I've read all of the Me Bridget too. Jones books. They're really good. As someone who reads a lot of kind of often bad chiclet, I mean, she is working at the top of the form. And she's very good. Working alongside two really excellent uh, screenwriters. And then, of course, there's the cast. Bridget Jones stars three people who are already very famous, obviously. Renee Zellweger had been in Empire Records, Jerry Maguire, Nurse Betty. She was set to be Roxy Hart in the upcoming Chicago movie. She was not uh, a big name in the UK at the time. And also, she obviously is an American. <laughs> and Bridget is this sort of British everywoman. And so there was a lot of controversy around her casting. Like, how is she going to pull off the accent? How is she going to be British in the way that one of many very capable British actresses could have done? But she really sold the filmmakers and she got the part and ended up becoming iconic in the role. So sorry, Brits. Yeah, no one was mad after the movie came out, but everyone in England was really freaking out when her casting was announced. And apparently it's not even like the filmmakers were interested in her. Her agent was like, no, she is the person for this part and aggressively hounded the filmmakers to be like, you have to see her. 
She's <gasps> going to be great. I know she's Texan, but she's this is going to be amazing for her. And they were like, fine, fine. We'll let her audition. They, she came in to see them and they were like, wait, she's amazing. Wait, that's so great. First of all, not only is that like every actor's dream, it is, she is, she's so fucking good in the part. Like she is Bridget Jones. I don't know. I And I feel like yeah. her... Her accent is really impeccable, which is kind of shocking. And she's, her acting, even that opening sequence when she's listening to All By Myself and crying, she's, oh my God, iconic. It's stunning. It's like a stunning performance of comedy. I can't get over it. (laughs) I know. When I was rewatching that scene, I was like, I can't believe this is the quality of acting I used to be getting from just my average (laughs) theatrical release rom-com <laughs> there's so many layers to this performance hugh grant was of course like the king of british romances at the time he was in sense and sensibility and four weddings nine months Notting hill like usually playing this sort of mild-mannered reserved floppy-haired sweetheart like the hero with the heart of gold and maybe not quite as much charisma but it's okay because he's just so sweet and diffident and kind. And so, of course, now he's playing Daniel Cleaver, the arch-villain of Bridget Jones' Diary, playing very much against type very intentionally, which I think was brilliant. Yeah, he was, I think, very excited to take on this kind of role. Something that maybe is more in keeping with his actual personality. <laughs> I know, I was going to say, I think that I think Daniel Cleaver is more like more like Hugh Grant. Yeah. Well, <laughs> partially, which is probably why he's so... I mean, I feel like this is my favorite role of his in this genre. Um, yeah. He's unbelievable. He's unbelievable. He's just unbelievable. He was suppressing so much, like, devilish charm and charisma to <laughs> to star in movies like Notting Hill all this time. Like, he... He had to keep I that mean, light under a bushel in order to play yeah, those characters. Sense and sensibility as Edward. Like, are you kidding? He is like the most mild mannered human that ever lived yeah. in that movie. He is the sensible choice <laughs> yeah. and not the sensibility <laughs> choice. I know. I mean, I uh, like. I like that he's just he's letting his freak flag fly, and he's kind of just a bad boy, and he's embracing <laughs> his bad boy. Um, you know, my favorite thing about anyone, actors, people, dogs, cats, babies, is when they're very much themselves. And I think that's partially why he, like, th- th- that's why this casting, all three of them are kind of brilliant. Because in a way, Bridget Jones, yes, she's the every British woman, but she's kind of every woman. And it makes sense that Renee Zellweger, this, like, messy, scrappy American, is playing this mess of a British woman. Because she's bringing... I would say uh, a little more honesty and a little more rawness than I think any British actor probably could, especially at that time. Shots the, fired the tight the British <laughs> Academy in 2001. Sowie, guys. The next Sowie. revolutionary war never. is happening. Yeah. <laughs> I, but I, 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 think it's, I think it's true because you you need the, the— the British men are so—they're just disasters and because they're so repressed. And— Bridget mm. is this, like, symbol of, she just is her. And, like, there's she's she's yeah. uncompromising. And and I don't know, that that's a kind of an American identity, actually. 
Which is funny because she true. is unflatteringly contrasted with an actual American in the movie as lacking that special American quality that might make her worth committing to. Totally. But it's true that she does embody these stereotypes that we associate much more with Americanness. Like, yeah, just saying whatever's on your mind and being <laughs> loud at inappropriate moments, taking up space. <laughs> it's true. Um, and of course, the final person in our trio is Colin Firth, who prior to this movie was best known perhaps as Mr. Darcy and the BBC Pride and Prejudice, the Pride and Prejudice in my heart forever. That is <laughs> why he got this role. It is inspired casting. He's perfect for it. He was also in Shakespeare in Love and the English Patient in supporting roles. And he went on to a very storied and acclaimed career, of course. Um, yeah, he has said since on. that this was like his first foray into comedy. He was like, I was 40. I had no idea if I was ever going to be cast in comedy. And then this allowed him to yeah, kind of break like into 40 this whole and I'm other. I'm starting to think no one thinks I'm funny. Like, this <laughs> yeah. is so tough. But and it's like, you can be repressed <laughs> and quiet and funny. That's it's yeah, what makes it funny. He He's so exactly tightly wound. It's un. Believable. <laughs> and this was when I absolutely fell even more in love with Colin. Same. Beth, watching this Same. movie. I found myself time. once the movie Perfect ended man. last night, even though I've seen it a billion times, I still Googled him and I was like, oh, he's 62 now. He's divorced. I'm married. I just had a baby with my wife. No problem. I think there's still a future for Colin Firth and I. Definitely. <laughs> Something could happen. Absolutely. Definitely. It could. Look. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your support. <laughs> we believe in you. <laughs> The supporting cast of this movie is also quite stacked. We have, like, Gemma Jones and Jim Broadbent as Bridget's parents. I also want to point out that Gemma Jones starred with Hugh Grant in Sense and Sensibility. She was the mother in that movie, too. Uh, and we have M. Beth Davids as Natasha, who I like to refer to as Miss Honey from Matilda. And just really playing a very different <laughs> role. Yeah, I was so movie. glad you pointed that out because I was like, oh, that's why she looks so familiar. <laughs> but I had not made the connection. Same. Well, that's that's like, come on, that's the dream. In terms of the acting, that she is both Miss Honey and Natasha. It's like, the, the these actors in the late 90s were able to like transcend type. And that's so, that's what's so beautiful about this movie. Like, you've got like a a, a bombshell actress playing fucking Bridget Jones, who's a design, you know, and every, anyways, it's all the stuff we were talking about, but it's such a treat yeah. to watch these actors get to not It wasn't all just like building what a brand as a certain kind of person. Exactly. So on that note, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back to discuss the reviews of Bridget Jones. Can you keep up? I like Newly is a subscription clothing rental service that's all about helping you have fun and get creative with your style. There's dressy stuff, trendy going out clothes, casual tops, and premium jeans. I mean, you name it, and Newly has it. For just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles each month, access to thousands of styles from more than 400 brands with inclusive sizing. Fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning in Newly's state-of-the-art laundering facility are also included. Plus the option to buy what you love. I love Newly so much. I actually have bought several items that I found through Newly, and they are staples in my wardrobe. Most recently, I've been looking for the perfect pair of 
genes, which is a constant quest because my body is always changing and also gene styles are always changing. I was trying out this month the A. Goldie Pinchwaist jeans, which are sort of legendary for how flattering they are. And it was exciting to get to try them out without sending 200 of my dollars away. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles. But right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code LTSI20. Just go to NUULY.com. That's Newly with two U's and enter the code LTSI20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y dot com, Newly with two U's with code LTSI20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes there will be something that is just like nagging at me, bothering me about something in my life, and I just swirl it around and around and around in my head and don't quite know how to address it. And something that can really help me sort that through and like take action is therapy. I completely agree. I've been really stressed lately because I've just been getting sick over and over again. And before I know it, I'm feeling a lot of emotions and I don't even connect where they're coming from with the actual origin. We all carry around these stressors, right? And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a great safe space to get things off of your chest and figure out how to actually work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash love to see it today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash love to see it. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list, as they should, because it's very important. If that's you, then make this year the year you finally check it off your list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Wow, that is really fast. Their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language... Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I personally used Babbel before I headed off to Paris for three weeks, and it was so helpful just kind of giving me back the basic understanding of French, allowing me to interact with people in restaurants, in shops, and, you know, just not make a total fool of myself when in a foreign country. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash LTSI. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash LTSI. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash LTSI. Rules and restrictions may apply. And we are back. And let's get into the reviews. Every part of me was just comparing 
uh, my deep dive on Bridget Jones to the deep dive on serendipity and truly just a study in contrasts. <laughs> um, All the critics should have it, had to watch Serendipity right before <laughs> reviewing Bridget Jones. <laughs> except that it came out after but yes nevertheless (laughs) nevertheless um but it it was not universally beloved by critics but it was pretty it was pretty well reviewed it got great reviews it has an 80 percent on rotten tomatoes should be 100 but whatever yeah whatever whatever fine um, the New York Times's Stephen Holden called Bridget Jones, quote, a delicious piece of candy whose amusing package is scrawled with Bon Mots distantly inspired by Jane Austen. So was Clueless, now already six years old. Bridget Jones' diary is the best and smartest film of its kind since then. I actually agree with that completely. Me too. I'm like, yes, yeah. they stand 100%. head and shoulders above the rest. <laughs> yeah, not, not every... Uh, critic was so on point, but Stephen Holden was. The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw praised Sharon Maguire's strong directorial debut, and I loved this line. He wrote that she, quote, directs with chutzpah and style. And I was like, (laughs) if you put chutzpah in a review, I love you. (laughs) Incredible use of Yiddish. Zellweger's performance was a big triumph. Even her accent was approved of by the critics. And uh, Roger Ebert was very flattering in his review. He gave it 3.5 out of 4 stars, saying of Renee Zellweger, here she is, fully herself and fully Bridget Jones, both at once. A story like this can't work unless we feel unconditional affection for the heroine. And casting Zellweger achieves that. I think that really speaks to what you're saying, Molly, that like we it's like we're watching Renee at really letting it all hang out as herself. But also at the same time, we know that she is just fully Bridget Jones in this way. Totally. It's it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous to behold. It's so good. I'm glad um, Roger Ebert and I are twins. (laughs) You know what? (laughs) Roger Ebert is actually like almost always on point yeah. is what we've found in reading a lot of his old reviews. He he really gets it and he really takes um, romantic movies seriously, which I appreciate. Yeah. Unfortunately, there was a lot of <laughs> negative commentary about Renee Zellweger's body and a lot of the reviews by male critics. And I do remember this being a big point of conversation around the movie that she was so like fat and unattractive. It was a massive point of conversation because she gained 20 pounds, which is not even that crazy amount of weight, but whatever. She gained 20 pounds to play the role. And what I was fascinated by is that a lot of these male critics like commented on her body and in a way that they were framing it being like, this is my positive commentary about this movie. And then you read what they wrote and you're like, what the fuck is your problem? So Peter Bradshaw at The Guardian wrote that Zellweger's cheeks have become plump, hamsterish, pushing her mouth into a continuous, unsexy pout of anxiety and self-reproach. Her thighs are massively dimpled and her great bottom is as stately as a sinking galleon and it's always in our face. Oh, and that my was that was God. meant to be positive. Can you believe we survived growing up as women in this era? Like no. she's 136 pounds and she is being described by film critics across 
the globe in this way. Like, her body is well, ridiculous okay. <clears throat> and ugly. Here's where I take umbrage. It First of all, the film in and of itself is a little fatphobic at times, obviously. Yes. We, that yes, and we will, we will get into that for sure. I'm sure. I'm sure we will. But her body is literally rocking. It's literally, it's so, she's so hot. When she's in that little bunny outfit, that bunny costume, come on. I'm like, take me away. But what's Sexy also funny fuck. is that these, exactly. And these gorgeous, like, men of British sex appeal are also fawning over her. So why is the movie simultaneously fat phobic and these men are in love with her? Like, it's just, it's, it's, that's the one area where I'm like, I don't know what message you're trying to get across because it's a little bit blurry. Like, it's not clear. I think it was very murky, and I think that has a lot to do with just, like, the moment. Because you look at these reviews, and you're like, oh, this is kind of the pool that we were all swimming in. This is the way that we felt, that the culture felt comfortable very casually speaking about women's bodies and picking them apart. The most egregious review, I had to send this to Claire when I read it because I was like, I can't believe this was published. Stephen Hunter at the Washington Post wrote that Zellweger, quote, put on enough weight to suggest a real woman instead of that eternal screen goddess with a 15-year-old's perfect, tawny, sinewy bod. She's not afraid to show a little avoir du poids squirting out twixt panty elastic and blouse hem, not a bulge so much as just a squidge too much tum, flaccid as unrisen dough. <laughs> I was like, somehow, somehow <laughs> like these two sentences in response to that. <laughs> it's anti-fat, shaming thin bodies, and also really creepy about teenage girls. I know, the creepy. perfect body of a 15-year-old. You want to take oh, that one God. again, Stephen? <laughs> What, where is he now? Yikes. What is he, what happened, what was going on? I mean, I but no, how, how, how can did we, we find survive him and that? take him down? Jesus <laughs> This Christ, was very normal at the time. That is, that is the wild thing. Like, it, I mean, it, his review yeah. is not unique in this kind of language. Um, although, Just saying this, this man has a Pulitzer. Yeah, he's a very, oh God, yeah. he's like almost 80, I think, and has a long, a long and illustrious career in criticism. And that's what he chose to write about this movie. And that kind of, I think, signals the era that we were in, as you're saying, where there's sort of this simultaneously expectation that women be unbelievably taut and twiggy and tiny and perfect. But then if you are, that's kind of fake, right? Like, you're not a real woman if you're like that. So maybe you should have curves. Like, maybe you should be a little bit more full-figured. But that's gross. And so you're just constantly (laughs) on this, like, toggle back and forth between, like, this unattainable ideal and then a more normal like, common female body archetype, and both are viewed as sort of, like, fundamentally wrong in some way, so that you're constantly, like... Yeah, like, the best... You can't win. Yeah, the best they could figure out, Helen Fielding, was, well, what if, like, the average-looking woman is beloved by two hot men? Like, that's, that's success in this economy, and I think now we would all question that conclusion. I'd hope so. I, I, yes, I would hope so. Although I will say it was weird to read this now and be like, I'm seeing a lot of similar 
things bubbling back up in the media landscape, which is disturbing, like this sort of fetishization of teenage girl bodies, extreme thinness, and then that, on the other hand, this idea that that's fake and that, you know, you should embrace a, a, a different kind of body type, like this, again, this like impossible fixation on extreme thinness and the attendant conversations, like it, it never really goes away. It just recedes. No, it kind of just morphs. Back. It morphs and it calls itself wellness and, yeah. and ozempic and the discourse is actually kind of the same. Right, like, yeah. Oh, so, should we God. get into it's the summary the of this movie, which is actually like seven pages long? Because let's do There's it. just too much in this movie. <laughs> I will try to not be too out of hand with this. So, we open on a snowy English street, and we hear a voiceover from Bridget Jones, played by Renee Zellweger, saying, "It all began on New Year's Day in my 32nd year of being single." It's her mother's annual turkey curry buffet, and she's dreading once again being set up with some bushy-haired middle-aged boar. Imagine being 32, and for years your mother has been trying to set you up with middle-aged men. (laughs) Run away. Boars. So her mother, Pamela, played by Gemma Jones, greets her at the door amid preparing an array of mini gherkins on toothpicks and hors d'oeuvres on doilies. This is how I learned about mini gherkins. Me too. I actually had no idea what they were the first time I watched this movie. (laughs) Same. And she launches into this, like, barrage of offensive commentary, all circling the topic of Mark Darcy. So she's like, Mark Darcy will be here. You used to play in his paddling pool. And then she reveals that Mark Darcy is divorced. And his ex-wife was Japanese. A very cruel race, she says. I forgot what a relentless ongoing theme of the movie this is. It comes up like five separate times where his ex-wife is referred to as being from a cruel race, which is like super racist. It's (laughs) clearly meant to be comedic that her mother is saying this overtly bigoted thing, but it's still very racist. And it is also the only like meaningful on-screen discussion or depiction of a non-white person. Yeah. And we only see this ex-wife later in the nude, like, having sex on a carpet. That is, like, the but only wait, we don't even see her. We don't just see of... her naked body? Exactly. Like, yes. I don't even think in I see her face. In theory, she is Japanese. We don't really see her face. We just see, like, a nude body having sex. Like, for that to be <sighs> the only real yeah. meaningful appearance of a non-white person in the movie is actually shocking. To me, yeah, just could have could have done devastating. without that. Yeah, it's it's really offensive. The fact that it's treated as a little joke does not illuminate the fact that it is super offensive, and it really plays into this idea, of course, of like Asian women being these sort of cold-hearted, hyper-feminine temptresses, and that's how they're often played against white women in pop culture in the Western world. So I was really struck by that on this rewatch. Yeah, I was too. It really, it kind of yeah, comes at you. Pretty alarming. It's, yeah, yeah. You're like, wait, what? What was that? I had for, I had forgotten how many times that reference was made, and it comes up a lot. And yeah, this movie is extremely white, so it seems like a very odd and intentional choice. Yeah. To, yeah. 
She then tells Bridget that she has to change out of her lilac turtleneck because she'll, quote, never get a boyfriend if she looks like she just crawled out of Auschwitz. <laughs> what? This is now uh, the second rom-com in 2001 that we've recapped in a row where I'm like, oh, my God, I forgot how many of these movies started with just a bunch of, like, racist or otherwise bigoted comments. And it's right away. It's in, like, the first... Uh, it, it, it's the yeah. first like, two minutes of the movie. And I, I also forgot. I didn't realize. I don't know. I've seen that movie so many yeah. times. And I've never, I think in watching it, you know, with the, a lens for a discussion, I was like, wait, this is bad. This is bad right from the get. Yeah. You watch it young and I think you just sort of like, it becomes unexpected piece of dialogue to you. You don't really think too hard about it. And then when you're intending to discuss it, you're like, wait, what? what are they talking about? Um, so (laughs) Bridget heads upstairs, puts on her mother's chosen outfit, a brocade skirt and vest set over a red satin Peter Pan collar blouse. This outfit has haunted my (laughs) dreams. Unlike the offensive jokes that did not stay with me, this outfit stayed with me as like the worst thing you could ever be forced to wear. Yeah, which is funny because I now routinely wear things that resemble With this. With Peter Pan collars. Peter Pan I collars, know, brocade. Like, yeah, throw it at me. There's something about this. It's the color palette and the ill-fittingness of it. It's very Doesn't 90s. she refer to it as a carpet? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I, and I'm like, yeah, I would wear something that resembles same, a carpet. Same, same. I was like, oh, you look good. You're trash talking it, but I like it. <laughs> I think it's sort of a reaction to, like, the Laura Ashley vibe of the 90s that her mother hasn't quite moved on from. And Bridget's like, I'm a modern woman. I wear, like, jeans and a jumper, you know? And we're back in, like, the Laura Ashley space now as a culture. So she then greets her creepy, not-real-uncle, Uncle Jeffrey, who asks her how her love life is while kissing her basically on the mouth. And she has to take refuge with her dad, played by Jim Broadbent. Like Lizzie Bennett, Bridget pretty much hates her mom. She only feels understood by her father. They have to huddle together at these parties to to really find communion with a like soul. This movie also very much cemented for me that I should never ask anyone how their love life is. I learned that lesson at the age of, like, 12 when I saw this movie. And I don't think I've ever asked anyone for the rest of my life how their love life was. So you're welcome to all of my friends. Because you're no Uncle Jeffrey. You're not, like, a sexual (laughs) harasser slash very rude man. So I actually did take note of how creepy Uncle G is. Um, and she yes. does refer to him as Uncle G right after he grabs her ass. And Claire, unlike you, I have yet to take that lesson. I frequently will have my hand <laughs> on my best friend's tushies and be like, so who are you seeing, honey? How's it going? <laughs> and You're like, I am Uncle Jeffrey. I That's what that. I took away from this I'm film. repulsed by Uncle G, and I'm also like, oh, fuck, I, I am he. <laughs> I feel like your vibes are different. Yeah. Okay. There's some element where I'm like, maybe Less sexual predator. Thank you. Maybe thank you so maybe much. it's bad that I took this film as a Bible on how to <laughs> act around my friends. Uh, so Bridget's mom drags her over to offer Mark a mini gherkin. 
So it's just like they're holding a platter that's just like a forest of toothpicks stuck into tiny gherkins. And she introduces Bridget by asking him if he remembers Bridget running around on his lawn with no clothes on, to which he curtly says, not as such. (laughs) Bridget is impressed by his hot bod until he turns around and she sees his corny reindeer sweater which is, that would not put me off, uh, frankly. I mean, no way. she's Look wearing that an outfit face. that her mom picked. Like, where does she get off judging this guy? They're both judging each other. <laughs> Una tactfully takes Pamela away to sieve the gravy. And Bridget, while smoking a cigarette, tries to make small talk with Mark about how hungover she is and how she's resolving to drink less and give up smoking for New Year's. Just those normal things you would talk about the first time that you meet a hot guy to try to... Get things Doesn't going. she say, like, I wish I was, like, laying over a toilet like all normal <laughs> like people, all normal or people. Like, with, with my head in a toilet like normal people? Yes, she, she <laughs> in fact, does <laughs> say that. <laughs> and then she's like, yeah, New Year's resolution, stop talking total nonsense to strangers. In fact, stop talking full stop. Full stop. Having finally driven herself into a conversational dead end, Mark finally speaks, looking visibly repulsed. He says, well, yes, perhaps it's time to eat, and walks off. Not a successful first encounter. Disaster. (laughs) As she's getting turkey curry... Also, it took me, I think, like, two decades of watching this film to realize that this is basically like a Christmas leftovers party. Like, they just took their Christmas turkeys and turned it into, like, turkey soup and turkey curry. And she's... Yeah, turkey curry, is that... That's not an American No, I think it's just a leftovers thing. Just, it's like, we have all this turkey. What can we put the turkey in? I'm like, turkey curry, my favorite. (laughs) As she is getting yummy turkey curry, Bridget overhears Mark telling his mother he doesn't need a blind date, especially not with some verbally incontinent spinster who smokes like a chimney, drinks like a fish, and dresses like her mother. Whew. Okay, so that this gave me goosebumps. That is the one moment where I'm like, he says it with such disdain, and the line is so intense that I was like, "It's so intense." Wait, how does this make sense for the rest of the movie? Like, I don't under—I <laughs> don't understand how this line is the inevitability that they are the match, right? The original Darcy rejection of Lizzie is like she's tolerably handsome, but not enough to tempt yeah. me, right? This is a little bit more like it targets every aspect of Bridget's personality and character. It's this actually is, like it's, it's, I hate that. <laughs> exactly. It's so cruel. If someone said that to me, I mean, because I guess what? It's a bit of a red herring because we're not supposed to think about Colin Firth again because maybe it's going to lead her to Daniel or, or Hugh Grant or whatever because she's that's what sparks her to go home and lose weight and stop drinking and stop smoking. But it didn't function as a. I don't know that it did its job. I don't know. I was like, why Why is it so cruel? Because I held on to that for the rest of the movie. And then when he, like, buys yeah. her the diary at the end, I was like, that's not the same guy. And He's not the same guy. In my mind, he was just, like, they, in a bad mood, being a depressive, and just, like, lashed out about her because he was annoyed at being, like, pushed on to some I woman. See. Yeah. I do think that, yeah, this is supposed, there's supposed to be a symmetry between them, right? Similar with uh, Lizzie and Fitzwilliam, that they initially judge each other very harshly, but then 
over the course of knowing each other, they realize that their feelings are softening and they now no longer even recognize the person who could say such horrible things about the person that they're in love with. And that is like, I think how that diary scene is supposed to bring it full circle is that he has to buy a new diary because she filled her old one with a bunch of really nasty comments about him. And they both just like didn't didn't have the right perspective on each other. They were blinded by pride and prejudice. <laughs> I am going to keep bringing it back to the source material. You must. But it was like an incredibly cruel comment. And I think they probably kept it in partly just because it's really funny. Like it makes an impression as a line in a good way and a bad way. <laughs> and Bridget reacts very strongly. She basically decides to change her life. She's like, I need to change something or I will live a life where my major relationship is with a bottle of wine and I'll finally die fat and alone and be found three weeks later half eaten by wild dogs. Of course, fat's just in there as a throwaway. Like this is a trend of the movie. It's always just like, God forbid, fat. That's that's the darkest thing you could ever be. It's the same as being eaten by wild dogs. Her two absolute things that she's the most terrified of are being fat and being alone, which are both kind of fine things to be, in my opinion. This brings us to one of the many iconic scenes from this film, Bridget in a red penguin pajama set on her, like, old vintage fainting couch, swigging red wine, checking her empty answering machine for messages, and giving a passionate lip-sync performance to All By Myself. I love this credit sequence. I mean... It's amazing. It's It's iconic. It's so good. And it really made me kind of sad for the fact that this era is gone. When you just would like check your answering machine, there'd be nothing there. And then you would just go about your day. I would just be sitting there staring at my phone. And then she makes a huge decision. It's time to start a diary and take control of her life. So she begins to document herself so that she can make improvements to each aspect of her life that she feels is wanting. She documents her weight 136 pounds, and she immediately resolves to obviously lose 20 pounds because she is an adult woman and she definitely needs to be 116 pounds. She documents her alcohol units. What is an alcohol (laughs) unit? I don't know. She documents her cigarettes. 42? Like, she is smoking a lot. That's alarming. (laughs) And she also resolves to no longer form romantic attachments to, quote, alcoholics, workaholics, commitment phobics, peeping toms, megalomaniacs, emotional fuckwits, or perverts. And most importantly, a person who embodies all of these things. And to find out who that person is, you'll have to stay with us until after this quick break. Can you keep up? I like love it. Okay. So you got engaged. Congrats. Now you may be wondering what comes next. If you're planning a wedding, the first thing you need to know about is Zola. With Zola, you can plan your entire wedding in one convenient place. From the day you get engaged and search for the venue to the day you send out your save the dates, make your registry, and even taste your cake. Zola has literally everything you need to make the whole process super easy and actually even enjoyable. There's even a five-star app that helps you plan on the go or, you know, from your couch, which is certainly how, uh, if I was planning a wedding, I would definitely want to do it as loungily as possible. <laughs> so important. I also just know myself. I, I know that 
planning any kind of event, like even a birthday party can get very stressful. And so it's been really cool to see friends use Zola. It really seems to make everything a lot less stressful. And as a frequent wedding attender, I love to be able to hop on that Zola registry and just purchase a gift. Easy peasy. I know I've done it. I won't forget. Thank you, Zola. Yeah, everything's all in the same place. It's perfect. Start planning at Zola.com. That's Z-O-L-A.com. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. Oh, I'm so happy the weather is finally turning. If you, like me, have been wanting to update your wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune, then Quince is for you. You can build up a lineup of timeless pieces that will keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year. Like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. And the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings right on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, as well as premium fabrics and finishes. I love Quince for all these staples. I mean, linen is my favorite summer fabric. They have so many amazing linen staples. I also found my new go-to like summer running around to the playground in the coffee shop bag. It's the pebbled Italian leather front sling bag. I can just fit a wallet and my phone and my AirPods in it, maybe some lip balm. Absolutely perfect. I'm so obsessed with it. And the price was exactly what I wanted to. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash LTSI for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash LTSI to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash L-T-S-I. And we are back, and it is time to meet her hot boss, Daniel Cleaver, played by Hugh Grant, the world's most fabulous cad. Yes, and just kind of like the perfect, the perfect cad. Like, he's not only Ugh, handsome and charming. That hair. He's an intellectual. He's the editor-in-chief at the publishing house where she works, which I guess means that he just, like, sits around in an office full of books and flirts <laughs> with his subordinates via email. It's a, hard, some, it's a hard job. Someone has to do it, Claire. It's a classic, like, hot guy who went to Cambridge, and someone was just like, here's a job. Like, you've read a bunch of books. You... You studied English, right? So true. Unfortunately, she immediately gets caught shit-talking her friend Jude's boyfriend on the phone as as her day at the office commences. Seeing the eagle eye of her superior at work, Perpetua, upon her, she tries to pretend that it's a phone call about their upcoming big release, Kafka's Motorbike. And it's a phone call with the famous literary critic F.R. Levis. Uh, about the how Kafka's motorbike is a searing vision of the wounds our century has inflicted on traditional masculinity. <laughs> it's positively Vonnegutesque. <laughs> what could be better than being Vonnegutesque? <laughs> and Daniel Cleaver clocks this and asks her a few follow-up questions. He's like, is that the F.R. Levis? And she's like, oh yeah, I know, it's impressive. And he's like, the F.R. Levis who died in 1978. 
She did not know that F. Harlevis had been dead for almost a quarter century at this point, and so she's got some egg on that adorable face of hers. She has to leave for an emergency consultation with her friends, and this is when we meet her buds. Journalist Shaza, played by Sally Phillips, banker Jude, played by Shirley Henderson, and retired pop star Tom, played by James <laughs> Callis, who, like, doesn't fit into this group at all. It's like, we just are people with jobs, and here is our best friend, a retired pop star. <laughs> doesn't he have better people to hang out with? And she decides, after consulting with them, that the best route is to lean into flirtation with Daniel Cleaver in order to smooth this over. So naturally, the next day, she arrives at work in a micro miniskirt. This immediately... She's also very hungover. Very hungover. Oh, naturally. (laughs) She's, like, always hungover. I will say that one of the things that did not hold up about this movie was just the assumption that everyone is wasted all the time. I was like, was everyone really this drunk all the time in 2001? And I actually think kind of, yeah, I think that not drinking that much is a modern. Yeah. (laughs) I think the sober curious movement had not, you (laughs) know, begun begun percolating. No one was doing dry January back then. (laughs) Daniel immediately takes the bait and starts sending her wildly inappropriate emails about her skirt. Sexual harassment at work is actually hot. Bridget's into it. She's encouraging this by wearing increasingly sheer and short outfits. She is sending him flirty little messages back over email. This is, of course, the source of the iconic line, which I use all the time. Shut up, please. I'm very busy and important. (laughs) So good. Little playing hard to get over office email. (laughs) This is the source of, like, the, the, the writing of these sexual harassing emails is so good. It's unfortunate that they're so funny for the sake of ending sexual harassment. But I was like, yeah, I can see how appealing this would be. It's really good banter, which is at the center of every great flirtation. That's what you want. Oh, yes. Yes. You guys, language is just foreplay. Yes, I agree. (gasps) Daniel finally asks her out, but first they have to go to the Kafka's motorbike launch where his boss, Mr. Fitzherbert, or as she calls him in her mind, Mr. Tits Pervert, because he just stares at her chest all the time and calls her Brenda. He has asked her to introduce him before he introduces the author of Kafka's Motorbike. And this kicks off an absolutely perfect getting ready montage in which Jude and her (laughs) other friends earnestly are like, your entire future happiness now depends on how you act at this one social occasion. You have to do everything we say. First, look gorgeous. So we cut to Bridget first shaving her legs and then inexplicably also waxing her legs. You got to double up. You can't be too sure (laughs) that you're hairless. You absolutely cannot shave them and then wax them because there's nothing for the wax to grip onto. I was very startled when I learned this as I got older. (laughs) Then... Then they tell her to totally ignore Daniel and suck up to famous authors. Cut to Bridget practicing saying Salman many times. Oh my god. How did they convince Salman Rushdie to do oh, to do this movie? Because Salman Rushdie is like such a fame whore. <laughs> He's so thirsty. He loves celebrity. Yeah, isn't Cut he, to Bridget. Isn't he also at in the end of uh First Wives Club, now that I think of it? I would believe that. <laughs> 
he just loves he loves dating models and he loves being famous. Wait, is that true? In my mind, Salman Rushdie's so cool. He's just like, sure, I'll do it. Whatever. I mean, uh, he I mean, he was married to Padma Lakshmi. Like he has what? this history of dating famous, wow. beautiful women and um, and kind of pursuing a, a sort of celebrity in addition to being obviously a very prominent literary figure. Well, this makes a lot wow. of sense. And he once beefed with me a little bit on Twitter. No big deal. Wow, fuck um, him. <laughs> so after after we get Tom's advice about circulating oozing intelligence, we see Bridget practicing saying, isn't it terrible about Chechnya? Chechnya's <laughs> intonations. That's the big geopolitical issue of the day to sort of talk about in an inconsequential way at a party. Basically, Bridget is a skim girly. Like, she is like, tell me the extreme cliffs notes of an important political or foreign policy issue so that I can sound smart at a cocktail party. <laughs> and the one line she learned was, isn't it terrible about Chechnya? It's unclear if she knows anything else about what's going on there. <laughs> the great thing about Bridget as a character is that she's not actually that great in any way. She's not that smart. She's not that informed. She's not much of anything, but she still deserves love. And that is why we all attach so strongly to her, I think. Shazer tells her to introduce people with thoughtful details. For example, Sheila enjoys horse riding and comes from New Zealand. Daniel enjoys publishing and comes. All over your face? Says Bridget. Every line in this movie is so good. I had to write all of them down. I'm sorry. <laughs> she then has to choose between a black mesh thong and these scary stomach-holding in panties, very popular with grannies the world over, that will increase the odds of getting to the crucial moment of the panties being revealed. Look, this this is the granny panty revolution. Um, yeah. They deserved this representation. And frankly, I think we should stop the slander. I think we kind of have. I think high-waist underwear... I love them. Is, is in again, in it's my true. opinion. And if that's not true, don't tell me. I don't want to know. I'm not no, wearing it is, a thong. Are you kidding? It absolutely it is. is true. High waist yeah. panties are wonderful. They're sexy. They're cute. They don't make you feel like you're a, uh, an adult wearing children's panties. You know, yeah. it's like a. It's a. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah. I don't always feel the top of them hitting at that awkward place on me underneath my dresses and pants. They hit at a natural waistline. Exactly. exactly. Um, so Bridget made the right decision. And very relatably, she is adjusting her shapewear under her black satin cocktail dress as she arrives at the event. And she immediately begins to circulate oozing intelligence. And the first thing she does is she drifts close to Salman Rushdie, <laughs> where he is talking to two other men. And laughs so knowingly at his discussion with them about Martin's definition of the novella and his opinion about that definition that Rushdie asks her what she thinks and she has to ask where the toilets are to escape. Just an incredible moment because I can't imagine that Salman Rushdie would bother to ask some random woman's opinion of a novelist's definition of the novella at this party, but... She really puts herself out there, and it completely fails. Then she runs into Mark Darcy. He's just all, everywhere all of a sudden. What happens throughout the rest he's of the movie? It turns out he knows everyone, and yeah, he's even like though a they lawyer, haven't seen each other for thirty socialite? years. They're just always in the same place now. 
They have all the same friends. They have all the same friends, all the same connections. He's basically a member of the literati, despite being a barrister. Yeah. Well, I think that the idea is that his colleague Natasha brought him. And right, Natasha and she's friends with Perpetua. Is friends with Perpetua. God, the like names. It's... Take me away. <laughs> you know what we need? We need, like, a New York City rescue that's doing, like, a litter of puppies that was found, and they all have names from Bridget Jones's diary. Yes. Natasha That would be Perpetua. great for, oh, yes. Shazza. Darcy, Shazza. <laughs> that's right. We need a, an incredibly cute name I'm calling for a for puppy. <laughs> And after a very awkward conversation with Mark and Natasha, we learn that Natasha, who of course is played by M. Beth Davids, is interested in Mark via a comment she makes to Perpetual, which is basically like, yeah, he's a catch, just give me time and I will catch him. And this is how we know that Natasha is a villain, because you can't talk about a man like that, like you're going to hunt him down. It's very inappropriate. That's for men to do to women. Correct. She's also very controlled, where Bridget is just like all over the place. Natasha is prim and proper. And even her, the way she speaks is in this almost like staccato way. It's very controlled. Bridget is is the least controlled person you've ever met. Yeah, she's the Meredith Morton of the movie. And spoiler alert, she's not the heroine in this one. For that, you'll have to watch The Family Stone. And this is also when I noticed an absolutely incredible moment from Salman Rushdie that I had never noticed before. Um, We see Natasha asking him at some point during this party, just in a corner, like it's not the center of the action, but on like off to the side of the screen, she's like, so how autobiographical is your work? And he says, it's amazing. Nobody's ever asked me that question. Which is the best joke I'd never noticed in this movie before, because that is, like, the only thing that anyone ever asks novelists. <laughs> and then it's time for Bridget's speech. It is a complete fiasco. She can't get the mic to work. She resorts to shouting oi at the crowd to get their attention. She brings up the, their tagline for the book, The Greatest Book of Our Time, only to immediately <laughs> caveat that Mr. Rushdie's books are also very good. And another author present, Lord Archer... His aren't bad either. And once she's accounted for all the other great authors present, she concludes it's maybe one of the top 30 books of our time, at least. Having completely undercut the book that they are launching, she almost announces Mr. Fitzherbert as Mr. Tits Pervert. She manages to rein it in and get his actual name out after a very long and awkward pause. He gets on stage, immediately calls her Brenda, and then switches the mic on. Wait, his she delivery not- in that moment, that the, this is this is what we were talking about earlier, the density of the like storytelling and the comedy. Because the speech is so like apocalyptically bad. And it's it's really you're like, oh God. Like my as she was giving that speech, like my anus was squeezing up into the far reaches <laughs> yeah, of my it, upper it, spine. I was like recoiling. Yeah. And then he gets up and he's so brilliant and he goes, Thank you, Brenda. <laughs> like, very, just a, as like a simultaneous dig and also somehow it's a it's a courtesy also because he's saving her. It's so yeah. good. And then yeah. he says, let me just switch this on. on. <laughs> <laughs> like, there is this very strong, like, odor of disappointment coming from him. Like, you've let me down, Brenda, but... Thank you. Like, mm-hmm. the, the least I could do is say thank you, as is my duty. 
And afterward, seeing Bridget in the doldrums, smoking by the bar. Side note, there's so much indoor smoking in this movie. <laughs> I it was giving me an asthma attack. I know. I had to pull out my inhaler just to watch the movie. I was like, <laughs> Jesus. It made me uncomfortable. I was like, that would be stifling. So Bridget is drowning her sorrows by the bar, and Mark sees her, and it looks like he's about to go comfort her, perhaps. He looks worried about her, but he sees that Daniel Cleaver has beat him to it. Daniel whisks her off to dinner, and she tries gamely to talk about the situation in Chechnya, but he just says, I couldn't give a fuck, Jones. And <laughs> I love her that. <laughs> how she knows R.C. Darcy. And reveals that he was Mark's best man. They were very close at university. And he explains the fact that they are no longer friends by saying that many years later, Daniel made the somewhat catastrophic mistake of introducing him to my fiance. Very strongly implying that Mark misbehaved himself with this fiance, ending their friendship. After dinner, they kiss, and they wind up back at his place, making out, laughing about her granny panties, presumably having sex, you know, just having, like, the perfect end to a perfect date. And the thing about Daniel Cleaver that I remembered at this point is that he's just, like, unfortunately very delightful. Like, you would want to He's captivating. <laughs> he's so delicious. He's making, he's, he, and he does have a way of putting her at ease, which is so appealing. Like, the way he talks about her underwear in this way that it's like, no, yeah. it's sexy. Don't be ashamed. Like, he, he's like a great person to have, like, a sex romp with. Absolutely. Yeah. Truth. And that can be the most, the dangerous thing, as we've discussed in our discussions of F-Boy Island, that, like, when an F-boy shows that kind of humanity where he's like, oh, I'm actually going to be so sweet and charming about her embarrassing underwear and make her feel like actually I'm obsessed with it and it's so sexy. Like, that is humanizing to them in this way where then you're like, and then he did that horrible thing to me? How? <laughs> now Bridget and Daniel are having the perfect fling. She is on top of the world. She is striding through the city on a cloud. Light-up billboards around London are revealing her new diary entries. 131 pounds have replaced food with sex. Two days I'm in. I'm going to say, <laughs> I think you need to still be eating yeah. when you're having sex. Yeah. Well, you yeah. need to eat to maintain the energy. If you're on a well, sex exactly. marathon, you need to have that calorie, That's, girl, so you can be, yeah, you you can be going be to carbo-loading. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. an Olympian situation. Yeah. When, like, you want your body and your mind to be functioning fully. Honey, when, when you're, you're in the, exactly when you're in the throes of lust, you need to be on an athlete's diet, okay? Yes. <laughs> like Michael Phelps. Correct. I still remember in high school a guy telling me once that his friend had lost a ton of weight by getting a girlfriend and having so much sex and I was like No, that what? that was a weird thing floating <laughs> around media then. It was like if you have a lot of sex, you'll also get skinny. Yeah, it's the sex of like, oh, I just lost the baby weight by running around after my toddler, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like I just did normal, fun, desirable life things and the pounds just melted away and now Yeah, God I'm forbid thin. you be happy and not lose weight. Yeah. You know? Uh, so she is thriving at this time in her life. Two days in, she's asking Daniel, what are they going to do when people notice them sleeping together at the office? And he's like, um, 
it's been two days. And she's like, well, that's such a brilliant moment of the film, too, because the way that those montages are set up in those scenes, you actually don't know how much time has gone by. Yeah. And so then that, you know, that it slaps us in the face that it's been two (laughs) days is so good. Again, that's one of those comic genius moments. Yeah. Well, it's really playing with the fact that, yeah, when you see time pass in a movie, the, the ways that they evoke that, it can it can be any amount of time. Yeah. And Literally, you're just yeah, like, oh, one it's probably hour, been weeks of them having a weeks, fling. And he's like, no, months. it's been two days. The phone rings and she answers inconceivably by saying, Bridget Jones, wanton sex goddess with a very bad man between her thighs. And unsurprisingly, it turns out to be her mom. Like, who did you think was calling that it would be appropriate to answer the phone with this? Maybe one of her very close best friends, but it could be a telemarketer. It could be her mom. It could be a number of people that she wouldn't want to hear her saying that. And her mom is having a bit of a late midlife crisis. And that is why she is calling. Her parents' marriage is unraveling. Bridget finds her at a mall where she works, giving a demonstration of a very phallic object called <laughs> Have It Oof that uses a handjob-like motion to de-shell a hard-boiled egg. I also want to note that, like, having it off is a British slang term, like, sexual slang term. For jacking off. Oh, great. I didn't know so, that. Uh, <laughs> so good. It's so good. <laughs> It's perfect. That this man is just so. It's not even just like Julian. It's more just like hooking up. It's more like oh, it's hooking up. It's something you do with someone. Like he had it off with her. Oh yeah. Okay. It's true. It's not a solo activity. (laughs) Interesting. Because the machine makes it look like it's a solo activity. Yeah, the machine looks solo. Right. We all love a good. (laughs) And like, amen to that props master, the props person who built that and made that. I worship at that altar. That is, I want to see that in a museum. That needs to be patented. I'm ready for it. She's like, and down, up, down, up, and then there you go. And then a little little egg juice comes out. It just like, and by the way, the overspray. Yeah, her little, her little vocalization. She goes, ooh. (laughs) I was just like, Gemma Jones is so is so good. She gives it her all to this role. Like this whole bit, like the have it oof that does the little double entendre with the egg and having it off. I was just like, this is brilliant. I never even really paid attention to this in previous watches of this movie. Same. I've never I've never seen that scene before. And I've seen the movie 20 times. (laughs) Incredible. Pamela complains to Bridget that she is fed up at home. Her father no longer pays attention to her. She's like, I've given 35 years to your father, cleaning his house, bringing up his children. And Bridget says, I'm your child too. (laughs) Pamela just breezes right past that. She's like, whatever, dear. What I realized on this watch too is that I'd always previously thought that she meant like, I'm your child also in addition to other children. But of course, she's their only child. What she meant was, I'm also your child. Like, yeah. it's not like you're bringing like, up your father's child. child. <laughs> and she's like, I have nothing to show for it. I, I don't have a real career. I have no sex life. And he doesn't even pay attention to me anymore. But Julian <laughs> thinks I have great potential. Julian is a host from the Home Shopping Network of Britain or whatever, who comes into the mall to have his colors done. (laughs) I died. I also noticed the have his colors done line this time for like the first time. Is there like, 
it's fully back. Everything, like, everything is that's back. old is new. Yes. I mean, my God, the TikTok generation loves to have their colors done. I'm constantly done. getting served reels of women getting their colors done. <laughs> Same. Did I do color I feel like work a dum dum. What's okay. getting no, your color analysis? color analysis? Like, are you a, a summer or a spring or a winter? I, it's all over TikTok. Yeah, really. it has to do with your coloring never, and what what palettes of color look best on you. So I did this in oh, high school. I think a family I've never friend, done it. To, an, 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 a family friend, gave me her old like color me beautiful book, and I was like, I think I'm a spring, and that means that I should never wear black. I should only wear navy. Right? I should never wear. Like pink, I should only wear peach because mm. those are the things that liven up your your face and eyes and hair. Wow! And now I'm always I just getting love the idea of women getting like draperies held up to them. <laughs> yeah, there's so there. so much <laughs> TikTok content, but I love the. It's a great joke that Julian has had his colors done because the whole thing is like everything he wears has like the opposite effect. Like I he see. looks bright orange all the time. <laughs> yes, got it. Soon, Pamela is working for Julian on television as an assistant presenter, helping him flog. <laughs> this also <laughs> killed me. Genuine diamante earrings in mock gold finish, which is like saying genuine rhinestone earrings. <laughs> While her father is watching, completely demoralized, as this orange man seduces <laughs> his wife away in front of his very eyes. <laughs> This orange man who, there's no possible way he can be straight. Yeah, that's a big element of the Julian mm-hmm. plot is he is both clearly gay-coded, like very strongly gay-coded, mm-hmm. and also he is has the abusive tendencies of a classic, like, bad straight man character. Absolutely. He's, he's a yes. deep guy. He's a multifaceted yeah. individual. He's got layers. He's, like, Mm -hmm. sexually rapacious towards Pamela and also verbally abusive and also seems pretty gay. Like, it's what... They're they're working outside of our standard tropes Absolutely. And you know what? Good for them. Good for them. Yeah. (laughs) That's equality, man. (laughs) The the way that they talk about uh, queerness in this movie is very of its time, I guess. Uh, The way that Bridget is always just being like, Ah, yes, my friend. He's a puff, of course. Like, it just, I don't feel like we would talk about it that way now. No, is is the equivalent to puff F-A-G? I don't think it's that derogatory. But it's not exactly neutral either. Yeah, it felt, it it, it rubbed me the wrong way as as a puff. Yeah. (laughs) I think it is is derogatory, but not quite as derogatory as the F word. Right? It's definitely at least like othering and a, objectifying right like her friend becomes kind of her accessory and she talks about like oh i'm going to this party full of puffs well like it's like wait why did you need to specify queer people anyone who's not a a cis white person is an accessory emma you must know this yeah oh yes i did forget this is 2001 please please don't forget (laughs) (laughs) meanwhile daniel a very, very straight man has invited Bridget away for a mini break. Her scarf blows away, her hair scarf blows away as they drive to this country inn in a convertible. So, of course, she arrives with the most sculptural windswept hair. <laughs> the most relatable moment for the whole film for me because I can never get my hair to behave. And I was like, this is very me, this moment. And she arrives with Daniel to find 
that Mark, Darcy, and Natasha are also guests at the very same inn. Why? Except that Bridget and Daniel are having fun. And Mark and (laughs) Natasha are being boring and doing work. Yeah. Snooze It seems like the implication, right, is that Natasha is using the fact that they work together to get Mark to do, like, romantic coupley things with her, but he's not quite getting the hint. But at the same time, she keeps being like, we really should focus on this work. And I'm like, Natasha, (laughs) are you going to try to, like, move things into a more intimate (laughs) space? And then at the end, it's like they're getting engaged, but their relationship is so sterile. It's still professional. (laughs) It's absolutely bizarre that that, that engagement revelation at the end, whew, that one gave me the heebie-jeebies. It also was like a more of a future engagement reveal. Yeah, it's it was like, like I one think day they're gonna they get will engaged be. one day. Which Trust. is a weird thing to say to a public party, but not nevertheless. Nevertheless. We get this we get this yeah. contrast and all of a sudden Mark is like watching Bridget being like, Oh, yeah. Look at that joy. They're they're both together on a pond rowboating, but while Mark and Natasha are working on legal briefs while they rowboat <laughs> in a pond. <laughs> insane behavior daniel and bridget are like smoking smoking (laughs) drinking reciting poetry to each other daniel is reciting body limericks to bridget and they're both laughing and laughing it does look much more fun so mark is so jealous he's like i want to be in that other rowboat reciting a body limerick right now well i think in that moment mark is also like i want to be able to be that free yeah. Yes. Like, he's so restricted. Yeah. Like that is his entire personality is like holding it in, not saying the thing. Like, and that is what Natasha brings out of him. And Bridget is very much coded as the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daniel then falls into the water while he's clowning around with Bridget, like trying to cross into her boat. And suddenly he's in the water of the pond in his wet white button down. It is a complete, like, inversion of the Darcy in a wet white shirt pond moment from the BBC Pride and Prejudice. I know. I can't believe they were like, sorry, Firth. Grant's (laughs) getting this one. Later in bed, she asked Daniel if he loves her, which is a wild move. And he changes the subject by having sex with her again. I just always think that it's better to just, like, say I love you if you want to start that conversation and not to be like, do you love me? Because that puts you in the the role of supplicant, right? That's also the tell that it's not the right relationship. Yeah. Right? Because she is feeling insecure enough that she's searching about for affirmation from him that she kind of knows in her heart he's not going to give her. Yeah. Yeah, she knows the writing's on the wall there. Yeah, exactly. It's like on Selling Sunset when Mari Luke keeps being like, Jason, are you going to propose? And it's like, haha, no, obviously not. <laughs> never. Sunday is Uncle Jeffrey and Aunt Una's Tarts and Vickers theme party. <laughs> Apparently, based on this movie, I can only conclude that just average middle-aged people are constantly throwing like essentially frat-style theme parties. <laughs> like this is straight up just like, golf pros and tennis hoes like <laughs> women you all dress up in a really naughty theme costume and the men will all dress up in a not naughty theme costume <laughs> and we'll all hang out and drink together but it's yeah, her British parents people friends having a garden party let us know is this a thing <laughs> is this a thing <laughs> alarming so daniel is supposed to go to this tarts and vickers party with bridget but he begs off at the very last minute saying he has to prepare for an important meeting the next day and Bridget 
suggests that he's just changed his mind about their relationship as she doesn't see what could be so important, which, first of all, is a hilarious thing to say, because, like, why couldn't something be that important? Like, he's in charge of the whole publishing house. <laughs> Things come up. And Daniel... But also she knows, she knows this about him. Well, this she's is like, the thing, is that the movie is like, the movie is like, she's right about him, but at the same time, I'm like, this is a ridiculous reason to think that he's lying. Things could definitely come up where he would have so to true. go work. And he bursts out that she wouldn't get it because the publishing house is in big trouble. The Americans are flying in to possibly shut them down. And she wouldn't notice because she just waltzes in in a see-through shirt and fannies about with press releases. And then he's like, sorry, sorry. I meant it, but I'm sorry. Uh, So sorry that I said that. Anyway, bye. And he leaves her to dress up in her Playboy bunny outfit (laughs) for the party (laughs) with a bunch of her parents' friends. And she arrives only to find that it was changed to standard garden party attire. For example, hats and Laura Ashley dresses. And she is the only person dressed as a tart. And this is how you know that Natasha is a huge bitch. Because her response to seeing Bridget is, so odd what some men find attractive. Yeah. Fuck off, Natasha. Also, everyone knew that it was supposed to be a Tarts and Vickers party, right? Like, people act like... so. I mean, there's a few It's also funny how this is exactly the same scene as the Legally Blonde costume yes. party scene. Exactly. They're both wearing sexy bunny costumes, like Playboy bunny costumes. I wondered costumes. if they... If, they I both came if out Legally in 2001. If, there was something in oh, the water. Wow, that was 2001. I was thinking that Legally Blonde came out after to be but fair yeah. the, the book bridget jones came out first so maybe that was drawn from the source material and they just stole it from that but i think it's it's interesting that apparently this was something that was an anxiety it's like what if i show up to a party <laughs> thinking it's a sexy costume party and i'm dressed as a playboy bunny but instead i'm not a playboy bunny and a really beautiful mean lawyer woman makes fun of me <laughs> it's true it's two <laughs> it's mean the lawyer ladies <laughs> romantic rivals and so she also runs into mark darcy who tells una that daniel cleaver is decidedly not good enough for bridget and she says well i should think you'd say the same thing about you after your past behavior and he's like what and she's like huh and then she goes back to london where she shows up at daniel still in her bunny outfit And he tries to quickly whisk her out, which, of course, makes her suspicious. So she checks his bedroom to see if there's someone there. But there's no one there. She's so embarrassed. She's so silly. All is well until at the door, as he's seeing her out, she sees a woman's pink sweater or jacket. Frankly, rookie move, Daniel. Incredibly stupid. She rushes back upstairs and finds a tall, slim brunette in the ensuite bathroom covering her bits with a giant file folder with Pemberley Press branding. <laughs> this is the f- so funny. Like, why would this woman? Ha- <laughs> she looks so relaxed, too. Like, yeah, yeah I've just been lounging like, oh. here with this file folder covering my bits since I heard you. Her vibe, her vibe is very much like, I was expecting you. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Well, Bridget, the I've... only thing this yeah. woman says in the entire movie, her, the only line that woman has is in that moment where she has that thingy covering her and she says, I thought you said she was thin. That's her one line. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's why how you know this woman's evil. It also really stuck with me because why were they talking about whether the other woman he was dating was thin or not? Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> yeah, very odd behavior. I also was like, this woman must be deranged because like, what were the conversations happening between her and this guy she now wants to marry? <laughs> I know. Like, like I guess she was like, engaged. yeah, totally lead someone on. Don't tell her about me. Fuck her all you want. Fine if you continue to lie about it. We will be getting engaged. Also, how thin is she? Like, <laughs> something's very wrong. <laughs> oh, is, my God. It, it, it's, it, is, it is deranged. It is completely ridiculous. <laughs> it's so, so wild. Poor dumped Bridget is bereft. She goes home. She cries in the bath. She watches Fatal Attraction. She watches nature documentaries about the brief and perfunctory coitus of lions. The fear of ending up like Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction is like a really strong Uh, That is also a crazy thing to look back on and for her to be like, I'm 36. I will probably never have a chance at a baby or happiness ever again. And I'm like, I know. I'm like, what? (laughs) Calm down. Calm down, Glenn. (laughs) Back at work, Bridget tries to play it cool. She heads into Daniel's office to give him an update on some publicity efforts for work because she does still work for him. And he cuts her off. He doesn't want to talk about work. He wants to talk about their personal, sexual, and romantic relationship that he initiated with her as her superior. And he wants to let her know that because Laura is so just, like, American, confident, and young, whereas Bridget and Daniel, who are two people of a certain age looking for that moment to commit, that's not really doing it for him. He really needs a sort of young, confident Americanness. For that reason, he is now engaged to Laura. This is like an absolutely devastating blow. I don't know how you could ever face the oh, rest of the office. And she like sells it. You, Renee Zellweger, you see it in her face and she just sort of like drops, doesn't say anything, turns around and leaves the office. Even Perpetua looks sorry for Bridget at this point. It's clear that everyone knows what's going on. They work in this sort of open office setup where he is in a glass-walled office private office above them and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of privacy they all see what's happening but bridget decides to rally she's like i will not be defeated by a bad man and an american stick insect so she goes to the gym she rides on the stationary bike she throws out her alcohol (laughs) bottles and her dating self-help books and she buys a bunch of like professional (laughs) self-help books and also like women don't need men books. (laughs) (laughs) And then she applies for jobs in TV by just circling a bunch of jobs working in TV and the classifieds and like applying for them. And I was like, man, it was so easy to just get cool jobs back then, I guess. You could just really pivot your career. Damn. This is why my, like my, my grandma and my stepmom and my dad would always just be like, you should just show up to a newspaper with your resume. And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) It's not how the job market works anymore. After lying very badly in her interviews, Uh, she finally gets an offer by being honest. With her last interview at Sit Up Britain, she says that she has to leave her job because she shagged her boss. And the new boss is like, you know what? I love that. (laughs) He's like, maybe you'll shag me. I won't lay you off. He's like, what I'm hearing is that you have skills, proven skills in the areas that I'm really concerned with in my employees. (laughs) He says, in fact, 
You'll never get sacked at Sit Up Britain for shagging your boss. That's a matter of principle. (laughs) It's such a good line. (laughs) Sexual harassment is like an ongoing theme of this movie and in this way where it's like it happens and like it's kind of fine. Like sometimes it's actually fun. Sometimes it works in your favor. Sometimes you need sometimes you need to pivot your career, but like what else? This is an extremely pre Me Too film. (laughs) Yes. Produced by Miramax. Produced by Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> <laughs> Harvey Weinstein is like, can we add some more positive portrayals of sexual harassment? I feel like I'm underrepresented. <laughs> <laughs> she then heads back to the publisher to give notice to Daniel, who tries to convince her to stay. He's like, you should give six weeks notice. And she says, well, given the trouble the company is in, I don't think you will miss the person who waltzes in and fannies about the press releases. And he's like, no, but, like, really stay. I think there are opportunities for you here. And then in front of the whole wrapped office, Bridget replies that if staying means working within 10 feet of him, she'd rather get a job wiping Saddam Hussein's ass. And oh, per- Even Perpetua is like, you fucking go, girl. Yeah, like, Perpetua look- looks at her with that, that gaze of hard-won respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T starts to play. People are That's people right. Are there are suddenly extras. This was former, like, before this scene, this was an office that maybe employed, like, six people. And suddenly <laughs> in this scene, there's 48 employees, maybe 60. And they're all applauding yes. her. And they're all women. Also, <laughs> one, well, there is one man I need to point out that is important because they gave Crispin Bonham Carter, who played um, opposite... Uh, Colin Firth in BBC's Pride and Prejudice, a cameo, and he is one of the office workers. <laughs> wow, I did not know that. That's he's holding, he's holding the book cover, being like, "Ah, oh, Daniel, Daniel." <laughs> There's, I feel like this scene has the vibe of you know, later in the movie when Mark and Daniel have a fight. Tom goes to the restaurant downstairs and throws open the doors and is like, "Fight." There's a real (laughs) fight. Like, it really feels like someone did that in the office building before this moment. And everyone just came rushing to watch and, like, applaud. But her first day on the new job is a disaster because her creepy boss sends her on camera right away to wear a miniskirt and slide down a fireman's pole in Lewisham for a live TV segment. On her first day, he gives her this very challenging assignment. And it goes awry. Honestly, through no fault of her own, just through no, miscommunication like, with production. F- yeah, I was like, what's wrong with these producers? They're not on their shit. Yeah. They're like, stop. No, climb back up the pole. No, come down. <laughs> climb come down back now. up the fireman's pole? Are you kidding? <laughs> no. And of course, what happens is that due to a less than nimble cameraman, her thong-clad butt ends up on national TV and she is humiliated yet again. And then it's time for dinner with the smug marrieds. I don't know. I think it, like, scarred me for oh, years. Oh, yeah. This, this scene, has haunted me since childhood. It's rough. It's very rough. Yeah. And they're all just yeah. also, like, clown acting. It's so... They're yeah. they're just cartoons. Hi. Yeah. Married people are all kind of cartoonish in this movie, which, like, fair enough. They have, you know, many privileges in society. But as someone who, like, has been in a couple since my early 20s, I was, like, so terrified of becoming one of these people throughout my relationship. Like, this was always, like, hovering in the back of my mind. Like, are you going to be, like, Cosmo and Woni? Like, oh, that's so funny because that I was such a Bridget and so obviously not a smug married <laughs> in my 20s that I was, like, 
I'm going to be invited to this social event. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, it just, it's such a miserable social event that from every side, I think there's terror of like being part of it. Like by the end of the scene, you're just like, why are you friends? Like, why are you going to each other's parties? I don't understand the relationship. Yeah, here. it doesn't, it doesn't make sense that they're friends at all because they're, they're at not. Oh, they hate each other. Yeah. The they aggression is like not her out. They parade her out like a little a little pet that they can be like, ooh, a, a, a single. Yeah. What's that like? She's like an anthropological It is like comedically experiment. highly exaggerated. It's so good. They, the couples all look and behave the same as each other. <laughs> They're all deeply contemptuous of Bridget for being single. After watching this movie, I was like, I don't think married and single people can be friends. Like you cross some kind of Rubicon, you become a different person. You can't be friends anymore. And the minute she sits down, her quote-unquote friend Cosmo turns the conversation to her and is like, when are you going to get sprogged up? Time's running out. Tick-tock. While rubbing his wife Woni's pregnancy bump. And I was like, I would punch him. If I were like anyone else at the table, including Woni, I would probably punch him. Like, what an inappropriate thing to say. Even if she were married or trying to, like, want, you knew she wanted to have kids. Like, you, there's no reason to ever ask someone when they're going to get pregnant. No, Cosmo's just a bad person yeah. is the thing. Well, and that's what He's that scene really is about. It's it's a yeah. cartoon yeah. character being like, ha ha, I'm married. When, yeah. when are you getting knocked up? You know, it's like... <laughs> and it's meant to be like a very, yeah, like It's meant to gross us out. Um, yeah. Yeah, be- because I think the dominant discourse at the time, like remember, this is the same time as Sex in the City, was this, I think there was for the first time, this like large, very visible number of women who had entered their 30s, who were not married, who did not have children, who maybe weren't even dating. Those demographics were changing and people were very freaked out about yeah, it. They make her give a little presentation. They're like, Bridget, why are so many 30-something career girls still single, even though they're fine physical specimens? Like, give us a li- your little like Newsweek essay on it or whatever. And she jokes like, oh, I suppose it's because underneath our clothes, we're all completely covered in scales. And no one laughs. I know. Again, I'm funny. like, are you friends? Like, what? No. Did you just meet her? What is happening? I think this is one of those things, too, like the 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 body discourse that, like, it was so impossible to do the right thing as a woman because she is terrified of being alone, but she looks at her friends who are in couples and she has contempt for them. And they have contempt for her. Like... There's no right place to be. There's no right way to be because every kind of path for womanhood is embarrassing and contemptible and gross. (laughs) And that's like what I felt really caught up in when I was growing up in this culture is I was like, I'm afraid of being single. I'm also afraid of being married. Like, it seems like both ways I will turn into someone who deserves no respect. (laughs) And that's dark. Like, that's that's the experience of womanhood in the early aughts. Yeah, that's what that's what you're taught. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully that's changed, right? Gen Zers let us know. Uh, But Mark and Natasha work with one of the hosts, so they are present, of course. And after Bridget heads out, Mark follows her to the door where he compliments her TV segment, and she takes this to be sarcastic. Fair enough. And she says, you know, you always make me feel like a complete idiot, and you don't need to do that. I already feel like a complete idiot most of the time. Mark responds with such an iconic monologue that we had to get a clip. I don't think you're an idiot at all. I mean, there are elements of the ridiculous about you. Your mother's pretty interesting. 
and, and you really are an appallingly bad public speaker. And um, you tend to let whatever's in your head come out of your mouth without much consideration of the consequences. I realized that when I met you at the turkey curry buffet that I was unforgivably rude and wearing a reindeer jumper that my mother had given me the day before. But the thing is, um, what I'm trying to say very inarticulately is that, um, in fact, perhaps despite appearances, I like you very much. <laughs> Uh, apart from the smoking, and the drinking, and the vulgar mother, and the verbal diarrhea. No, I like you very much. Just as you are. Oh, That speech Take is me, uh, iconic. <laughs> it is the... I found it so deeply romantic at the time, and I still find it so deeply romantic. I just love him. It's just funny because this is like the Bridget Jones diary of Darcy's bad proposal, where he's like, against my better judgment, I find that I am really But into then you. because they added the, I like you just as you are, it changed the entire feeling of it. And yeah. also, when it comes back they around had, in the end, she gives a similar dressing down of him and then says, but I like you and I want to be with you. So it's a little more equal. Yeah. It's it's he's embracing the the ridiculousness of her. This is when Natasha comes out and snaps her finger at Mark, and he has to leave to go back and discuss. They're the always case. working. <laughs> She's just so unpleasant. <laughs> She's like, we really are making progress on this case at at this dinner party. It's so much like the um um what's Cher's dad and Paul. What's his name in Clueless? They're always working Paul on that Rudd. case, too. Yeah. That's a lawyer stuff. You know, a legal case, it never stops. It never you stops, gotta, guys. You got to put in those hours, stops. those billable hours. <sighs> Bridget retreats to her coven of singles who are almost in awe of this speech. They, they go around the circle and none of them really has anything to say except like, wow. Fuck me. <laughs> Fuck me. Yeah. <laughs> Jude's like, just as you are, not with, not slightly clever, with slightly bigger boobs. And I'm like, what kind of guys are you guys dating that would actually admit that they want your boobs to be bigger instead of pretending that they love them? At work, Bridget is sent to interview Kafir Aghani, a Kurdish freedom fighter, and his wife, Eleanor Heaney, after the verdict in their case, which will enable him to stay despite an extradition order that would result in his certain execution. And so she heads downtown and outside the courthouse... As she's buying cigarettes, Bridget runs into Mark Darcy. Her camera guys run in to tell her that they fucked up. Agani and Heaney have already left. They didn't get the interview that she was very firmly ordered to get. She's like, oh, my God, I'll be sacked. And Mark is like, no, I know what to do. Listen, I'm their lawyer. No one got an interview. But I can get you. He's like, a I sit down saved. interview. I was like, you represent these people. Don't you have a greater duty to them That's than what to I was thinking use them too. To I was get like, um, maybe you should have like someone legitimate interview them. This seems like major news. Yeah, a real television. Like, where's journalist. Barbara Walters? You know, it's got to be Bridget. Bridget Jones. Kind this of- is her breakthrough, and I love it for Bridget. <laughs> Mm-hmm. She does this kind of hilariously bad puff interview that 
all we really see of it is her asking Eleanor whether she fancied Kafir the minute she saw him. He doesn't get a line. <laughs> Presumably she asks him some questions too. But like this makes her suddenly a broadcasting legend. And I'm like... <laughs> I know, as a journalist... <laughs> I had I the same like, thought. I know. I said to Hannah, I was like, wait, how... How is she a legend now? And Hannah was like, I don't know. She's, just, she's so cute. She just is, she's just so cute. She just is. And adorable. And she asked some other very hard-hitting questions that we didn't get to see, we assume. It's like the legendary moment when she's like, I'm going to take this absolutely like important political moment and treat it like it's a red carpet interview of like the new hit couple. Yeah, and be like, but when did you want to make out with this face? Legend. Yeah. <laughs> and then the last thing we see her saying is that she's, like, got a bit of a crush, actually. It's, like, all framed through this, like, pop women's media, like, red carpet-style journalism. And everyone's like, oh, my God, Bridget Jones, <laughs> revelation. Like, she really nailed it. She then celebrates by making an elaborate birthday meal for herself that goes entirely awry. The soup is blue. There is puree all over the kitchen. Meanwhile, her mom calls her to update her that while Julian is an asshole, he is very good in bed, or at least very surprising in bed, which seems gross, questionable. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know about surprising as a positive attribute here. And then Mark Darcy arrives with a newspaper write-up of her interview. He rescues her dinner party by making omelets while they flirt. And then he joins her friends for a delightful dinner of blue soup, omelet, and homemade marmalade, which looks truly disgusting. Awful meal. I wouldn't eat that soup. I don't think that blue dye is, <laughs> that you use in string is meant to be consumed edible. You know, the Brits are actually, they have very rigorous uh, safety testing around standards around dyes. So I, I don't think they would permit this. Hey, guys, we went a little bit long on this one. We had some tech issues, and also we just needed to discuss every single sentence of this movie. Uh, So Molly had to run, but we adore her. We're so glad she could join us for this recap. And now Claire and I will speed through the rest. Yeah, (laughs) we're going to do our best in her absence. So in comes Daniel Cleaver to Bridget's birthday celebration, and pulls her aside. He's like, I can't stop thinking about you. Things are just going too fast. I'm just a, a dis- terrible disaster with a posh voice and a bad character. You're the only one who can save me. And she asks him about Lara, and he says, oh, yeah, she dumped me. When she realized I hadn't gotten over you. Yeah, great save, Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> she begins to soften, but then Mark pops through and says he's leaving. And this kicks off the annual fight over Bridget. There's one in every Bridget Jones movie. They gotta do it. They gotta tussle. This fight is so iconic. I was reading the oral history, and apparently when they were first choreographing this dance, they, like, played it more straight. And then, like, Hugh and Colin kind of were talking, and they were like, neither of us knows how to fight for real. So we're gonna just be, like, 
ridiculous with it. We're going to be goofy because this is how this is how it would actually go if either of us tried to like get into a fight. Yeah. And it works and so it fits well. And with Bridget's thing too, right? Like that it helps you see this fight as part of her real life because she is a little bit ridiculous. Her life is a little bit ridiculous. So for these two hot men to be having a really straight-faced like intense fist fight over her feels incongruous, No, this is right? perfect. But this is perfect. They're like grabbing each other's legs and like hopping around trying to flip each other <laughs> over you know they mark does get some good punches in but it's a lot of just like hopping around and in, in a knot together they burst into the greek restaurant downstairs still fighting but all pause oh to my sing God. happy I birthday i love this they're like happy out. birthday what what's his name like it's so <laughs> It's great. <laughs> and just as it concludes, Daniel pushes Mark through the plate glass window. Mark is going... They're going to owe a yeah. lot of money to I was going to say, he's going to have to like, represent himself in court. <laughs> I know. He keeps being like, I'm so sorry. I will pay. And then, like, launching another <laughs> full frontal attack. He knocks Daniel out with a final punch. And Bridget turns on Mark at this point and says, what is wrong with you? You give the impression of being all moral and helpful in the kitchen. But you're just as bad as the rest of them. Mark is like, oh, my mistake. And he leaves deeply offended. Frankly, I feel that uh, this is a fair reaction. Daniel wakes up and tells Bridget that they belong together, the two of them and her little skirt. If I can't make it with you, I can't make it with anyone. And Bridget finally says, you know, that's not a good enough offer for me. I'm not willing to gamble my life on someone who's not quite sure. And now it's Christmas again. We're finally back at Christmas. The reason, the reason for this movie, Bridget is having Christmas at home with her dad and they are watching her mom be like verbally abused by Julian on television. Yeah. She looks like visibly skittish and teary (laughs) on television. And Julian is, has turned fully red. But then even as they watch her on screen, they hear the keys of the door and her mother opens it and comes in. She's there. She wants to rekindle because Julian is almost purple up close and honestly also abusive. And those are two very good reasons not to be with him. She asks her husband to pay more attention to her. And she's like, you know, it's really not cool how you and Bridget always band together to, like, make me feel silly. And I want you to work on that. Fair. What do you think? And he's like, absolutely. So they're back together. And it's time for the whole family to go to the Darcy's Ruby wedding party, which I think is their 40th anniversary. And Bridget refuses to go because she's pissed at Mark. But then her mom once again brings up Mark's cruel race to X and mentions that Mark found her shagging his best man in a very unorthodox position on Christmas <gasps> Eve. And this is when we get the like lurid shot of their bodies like writhing together on a carpet. And the face reveal is that it's actually Daniel, not the other way yes. around. Exactly. Uh, she realizes that she's been very wrong about who was. This is in a Wickham right situation. Yes. Wickham lied. Daniel lied, and she did a great injustice to a reserved and wealthy man. (laughs) So she races to the party to explain to Mark what happened, that Daniel lied to her and it confused her, and to express her feelings, which is that she likes him very much despite all of his 
many issues, such as wearing bad sweaters that his mother gives him. He doesn't have much response in the moment, though. This is a lot to absorb. And then he's called away to his dad's anniversary toast, (laughs) which is when his dad announces that Mark is moving to New York with his partner-in-law, Natasha, who he's sure Mark won't mind him revealing, will someday be something else in law. And then the band plays a little <laughs> a little bar from the wedding march. <laughs> and Natasha's like, oh, I, I, be- I begged him not to say anything. But it doesn't even seem like they're dating. Like, it's this very weird thing where, like, they're not dating, but also they plan to be engaged in the future. <laughs> These... These people are always around each other, but only because they're obligated to be is really the vibe. Yeah. And then it's like, but they're in, gonna be engaged yeah. or they are engaged maybe. And you're like, we've never seen them touch. Yeah. It seems like Natasha kind of told his parents that they were getting engaged and they were like, oh, cool. And his dad leads a toast to Mark and his Natasha. And Bridget shouts out, no, no, no. No. And then goes on a rambling monologue to the entire party about what a great loss (laughs) Mark's mind is for the British legal system and how terrible it is for them to lose one of their top people, top person, really, which I love the (laughs) symmetry with Kafka's motorbike that she's like, no, not one of the top 30. He is the greatest person of our time. (laughs) (laughs) Back at her apartment, contemplating her latest self-imposed humiliation, (laughs) Bridget gets a buzz. It's her friends whisking her off to Paris for a cheer-up vacation. But then, who should show up in the snow as they're packing up to leave but Mark Darcy? My God, swoon. He loved her speech. He feels the same way. Everything is coming together. He sweeps her into his arms. He's not going to America. No. Her friends head to Paris without her, and she and Mark go upstairs, where she is mid-change into a sexy outfit involving some leopard print underwear, when he sees her diary open to a page full of insults about him. And he leaves without saying a word, obviously. (laughs) She's like, no wonder his wife left him. And he's like, right. And he stalks out the door. Bridget sees him leaving through the window. She calls after him, but he doesn't turn around. So she throws on a sweater and sneakers over her underwear and runs out the door. She finally finds him in the snow. And she, this uh, sequence is so iconic to me. Completely. The music, like I can just hear it playing. It's like, ain't no mountain high. <laughs> and she's running and the the man on the corner, corner is like, good luck, you crazy girl. <laughs> and she's just like running in the snow. This, this was like it. For me, Ugh. when I saw this movie for the first time, this this sequence had just like such yeah. a such an impact. Uh, it's really it it really is an, an extremely memorable and to a rom com. Like I and I think it does something just really. It it puts so many obstacles in its own way, right? By making Bridget yeah. so sort of ridiculous, and she's wearing her leopard print underwear and her sneakers, <laughs> and it's still like the most romantic thing you ever seen. You know, they don't have to like look perfect or have some sort of gauzy setup. It's it's still romantic with all the ridiculousness, and it really drives home the fact that despite all of the makeover montages, all of her talk of changing herself to to change her life. Bridget never has a makeover in this movie. 
she is exactly the same and looks exactly the same from the beginning to the end. All of that growth is internal. Yeah. And it's internal, yeah, in a way that just results in her maybe being a little bit, like, having a broader perspective on what a romantic partner should be. Right. But fundamentally, she's still the same person who does embarrassing things and says embarrassing things. Yes. And she's still enough without having changed any of those external or internal things that make her who she is. And I think that's why this is so obviously a movie from source material that is written by a woman, directed by a woman, and consumed primarily by women. Yes. Like, because that, and that is why I think it was such an affecting thing to watch as a young woman and be like, wow, that is romantic as fuck. Yeah. Like, this feels attainable to me. This feels like what romance could look like in my life with Colin Firth. And when she finds him in the snow, she's like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. Because she knows why he left. She saw the diary out. She's like, I didn't mean it. I mean, I meant it, but I was so stupid. I didn't mean what I meant. And he's (laughs) like, I know. I, it's fine. I just, I got you a new diary. I think it's time for a fresh start. And he (laughs) gives her the new diary. They make out. And she says, I'm like, nice boys don't kiss like that. And he says, oh, yes, they fucking do. Oh, yes, do. they fucking do. That also stayed with me forever. I was oh, like, yeah. uh, oh, my God. Classic. So sexy. <laughs> and that's the end of Bridget Jones' wow. diary. I love doing these summaries that are increasingly detailed and then being like, so if you've never heard of it, that's the entire plot of everything that happens <laughs> in this movie. Anyway, see you next week. Uh, what I realized... <laughs> is that I can quote this movie and I didn't realize that I had committed so much of the dialogue to memory. But that is the mark of a great film. So before we go, we are going to rate this movie out of 10 mini gherkins. (laughs) And before Molly had to leave, we did ask her to give us her rating. A classic 10 out of 10 mini gherkin hit. Extravaganza. Claire, Molly gave this 10 out of 10 mini gherkins. What do you give it? I'm going to give it oof, a 9.5. I That's what I was thinking, too. There is all this stuff, as we discussed, racially speaking, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, LGBT anti-fatness. issues, anti-fatness, sexual harassment, that <laughs> really does not hold up. And, like, I don't think that a movie needs to be, you know, perfect in its politics to be a really good movie. But I can just imagine a movie that is this good that doesn't rely on any of this that I have to dock it at least half a point. But it's so good. It's so funny. It's so dense with material. It's so smart. It's so romantic. It's so relatable. It's so aspirational. Renee Zellweger is so wonderful. Hugh Grant is wonderful. Colin Firth is wonderful. The romance of it holds up in a way that is kind of amazing to see something, you know, when you are a young teenager and then come back to it in your mid to late 30s and be like, the the feelings are still brought up in me in the same way. It is, again, such a contrast to serendipity where the entire conception of love felt misogynistic and childish and ridiculous watching it back. This, it's like, I still love Bridget, despite, just as she is, despite all of her foibles. And 
And we love her for I love her foibles. She goes there. We love her for her. They're foibles. what make her a resonant character. And yes, yeah, I I agree. And also, I just as a as an Austin fan, I love this model for a modernization. It's so loose and easy with yes. it. It's not all tense with anxiety of like, how am I going to update every aspect of this novel in a way that is exactly like in the original book, but modern. And that gives it uh, a much more relaxed, confident approach to its own narrative. I often find Austin modernizations feel like really artificial and forced at points because they're like, well, what's the exact modern analog of the shame of Lydia running away with Wickham, right? And it's like, they don't even bother with that in this movie. They're just like, that will just be transmuted into all of the embarrassment that all of the women in the movie go through dating men who treat them badly, right? All of the embarrassment and shame and emotional pain, that is sort of the modern analog to what Lydia goes through. And it portrays I love a true that. a truer understanding of Austin and and her like send up of the social yeah. mores of the time and the the challenges that women of a certain class faced yeah. trying to find happiness. And, and that, yeah, is, it respects that, that is what those mores have changed. There are universal things, yes. but there are also changes and it's responsive to those by being just, yeah, looser with that adaptation. I love that. And I think <sighs> it will always be in the modernization canon for that reason. An excellent I agree. movie. Everyone, go watch this movie if you haven't seen it and if we haven't completely ruined it for you or just watch, watch it again for the hundredth time. It, it is, it's a wonderful, wonderful delight. And on that note, that is it for this episode of Love to See It with Emma and Claire. Thanks to our guest, Molly Bernard. Love to See It is produced by us, Claire Fallon and Emma Gray and Stitcher. This episode was edited by Talon Stradley. Our theme music is by Tamar Haviv and our art is by Celine Chang. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. If you like our show, please remember to follow us, rate us five stars, leave a review, and of course, spread the word to all of your friends about Love to See It. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at claireandemmapod at gmail.com. You can also find us on TikTok at Love to See It Pod and Instagram at claireandemmapod. And you can find our newsletter, Rich Text, on Substack at claireandemma.substack.com. I'm also on social media at Emily Rose. And I'm at Claire E. Fallon. We'll be back Friday to talk all about Golden Bachelor Gary's Golden Live Wedding. Stitcher. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. You're probably already familiar with Vogue, you know, the publication that has given audiences an exclusive inside look at fashion and cultural moments for more than 100 years. 
You can expect no less from Vogue's podcast, The Run-Through with Vogue. Meet the influential people behind the scenes of fashion's greatest moments, from designers and creative directors to Vogue editors and the woman behind the infamous Vogue closet. Get inspired while listening to the creative processes of people like author Zadie Smith, fashion designer Tori Birch, and uh, recent star of the Super Bowl, Usher. Go beyond the pages of Vogue with The Run-Through, available wherever you get your podcasts.